I gave an overview of sorts of this passage a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to end up spending a few weeks just on this first part, first half or so of John 15. And in this famous passage, Jesus prepares the 11 disciples for his upcoming death, resurrection, and then ascension back to heaven where his Father is. And he's instructing his disciples on what it means to be his disciples, which of course means he's instructing us too, since we are disciples. What does it look like to follow Jesus after he goes to the cross? That's the question that this passage answers. And the illustration that he chooses here in John 15 is based on the universal principle that every person does whatever it is in his nature to do. Every person always acts in harmony with his nature. What what you are will come out in what you do. And Jesus' point is this. True disciples, true followers of Christ have an enduring, life-giving, fruit-producing union with Jesus, with our Lord and Savior. Genuine disciples bear fruit because they are vitally connected to Jesus, the vine. They have a, a renewed nature and they can't help but act in accordance with that new nature that God in His grace and in His sovereignty has given them. And today we're going to limit our meditation on just the verses 1 to 6 here in John 15. So you can open your Bibles to John 15, which I read. And these verses lay out this, this illustration, this illustration of the vine and the branches. And the point of the illustration in verses 1 to 6 is simple. Being vitally connected to Jesus brings new life. And this new life is made visible. It can be seen by others by the fruit that it produces. The first two words of John 15 are ego me. Ego, where we get the word um, self, I, ego. I am is what that means. And this is the seventh and final I am statement. In John's gospel, I am the true vine, Jesus says. And the emphasis here, as we talked about a couple weeks ago at length, is on the word true. Jesus means to say here that he's the bona fide vine, the genuine article, the real deal. Israel was God's vine in the Old Testament, but that vine was, was a mere shadow of the true vine to come, which is Jesus. This is the way the word true is used in other places in the New Testament about Jesus. For example, Jesus is declared to be the true light in John 1, or true bread in John 6, or the true tabernacle in Hebrews 8. And one of the things about this passage in John 15 is that gets lost on us, but we can be certain that, it was, that the original disciples 
wouldn't, would have picked up on this right away, is this. In the Old Testament, the vine is a well-known symbol of Israel. In several different Old Testament passages, Israel is portrayed as God's choice vine or as the vineyard of God. We only looked at one passage last time. We looked at, John, uh, at Isaiah 5, you know, where, where Isaiah writes, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. This is talking about Israel. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes or bad fruit, some translations say. For the vineyard of the Lord, verse 7 of Isaiah 5, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. And behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. The Lord chides Israel in a similar way through a different prophet, Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2, 21, he says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy a pure seed. Holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate? And become a wild vine. The book of Ezekiel likens Israel to a vine in chapters 15, 17, and 19. Ezekiel 19, 10. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Hosea 10, 1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Psalm 80 The psalmist uses the image of a transplanted vine to describe God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan. It's a transplanted vine. Psalm 80, verses 8 to 10. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations in Canaan in the promised land and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. So in the Old Testament, God's vine is Israel. And the sad story of the Old Testament is that God's vine fails to produce fruit. It fails to produce good fruit. It produces fruit, but bad fruit. The vineyard of God ran wild. It produced sour grapes. In Isaiah 5, 4, God asks, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? Why did it yield wild grapes? Jeremiah calls Israel a degenerate and wild vine. Hosea calls Israel a luxuriant vine that got, off, it got started off on the right foot, but then went wrong. The fruit increased initially, but the more Israel prospered, the more Israel sinned until she became utterly fruitless. So Israel is a vine planted by God to be fruitful, fruitful, but which is not fruitful. This is the background that the 
disciples would have been quite aware of. By contrast, in John 15, the Lord Jesus is the true vine. Isaiah 53 says that Christ grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Men despised him. His people despised him. His brothers despised him. Mankind despised him. But God declared him to be his beloved son, in whom he was well pleased. So Jesus, by his very nature as the true vine, brings forth fruit for the Father. He pleases the Father by bringing forth good fruit, by being a faithful vine. He brings forth fruit for the Father, who is an expert and faithful vine dresser or gardener. So by taking the identity of true vine... Jesus contrasts himself with the nation of Israel, God's people. Israel is not the true path to God. The path to God goes through Jesus. You don't have to become an Israelite to be right with God. You need to become a disciple of Jesus, the true Israelite. The fulfillment of Israel. You don't need to get circumcised or bring sacrifices to the altar, the temple altar, or keep the Jewish festivals and holy days and Sabbaths. The only thing you need is union with Jesus. You need a vital connection to the true vine. There's only one way to please the gardener, and that's by becoming a fruit-bearing branch on the life-giving vine. And it's not your fruit that pleases God, that makes you right with God, that saves you. It's the vine's works and fruit on your behalf. But becoming connected to this vine, becoming united to the vine, happens by putting your faith in the vine, in Jesus. Union with Christ, connection to the vine, is by faith alone. So, in this illustration, the branches are, are disciples. And Jesus mentions two different, two types of disciples. And we've seen this throughout the book of John. There's, there's two different kinds of believer, two different kinds kinds of disciple, living disciples and dead disciples, living faith and dead faith. Verse 2 says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The previous sermon focused on this verse, so we'll just spend a few minutes before we move on. But the point here is that some disciples hang around Jesus without a real life-giving, life-receiving relationship with Jesus. Now, to the untrained eye, to the, to the untrained gardener, I guess, these might look like decent branches. 
But the expert gardener, the father, knows which branches are vitally connected to the vine and which ones are not. And so, in a way, verse 2 presents Jesus as a divider. He, he comes to cause a certain kind of division. And we know that he says as much in the Gospels about himself. Josh Redberg and Matt Carter put it this way in their excellent exposition of this passage and this verse in particular. Quote, Jesus is divisive. His presence divides true disciples from false disciples. He didn't come to coddle false disciples. He says, false disciples will be cut away by my Father. If you don't bear fruit, then you're not connected to Jesus. If your life shows no evidence of Jesus, then, you're, then you don't belong to Him. If you are connected to the vine, God is, doing, God is going to do whatever it takes to cause you to bear fruit. God will cut you and prune you and trim you and chop you. He is not content to let you stay on the vine bearing little fruit. God is ruthlessly determined to shape you into something much better and more beautiful than you are right now. He is determined to make you more like His Son, Jesus. The only way that will happen is through cutting away the parts that are dying so that you can grow more and more healthy. God's commitment to your fruit bearing is greater than your commitment to your comfort. God will do whatever it takes for you to bear fruit. End quote. And two weeks ago, I read you the lyrics of John Newton's hymn, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And if you haven't meditated on those lyrics, you, you should. And today I'm going to read you from one of Newton's pastoral letters. Listen to what Newton writes to a parishioner. Quote, At length, and without further apology for my silence, I sit down to ask you how you fare. Afflictions, I hear, have been your lot. And if I had not heard so, I should have taken it for granted. For I believe the Lord loves you. And as many as he loves, he chastens. I think you can say, afflictions have been good for you. And I doubt not, but you have found strength according to your day. So that, though you may have been sharply tried, you have not been overpowered. End quote. As a child of God, as children of God, always be confident that whatever difficulty you're enduring, you're going through, it's the result of God's love and care for you. Because God loves you, not in spite of the fact that God loves you, but because God loves you, He molds you into something better than you are now through painful experiences. He conforms you into someone who looks more like his son, Jesus Christ. The pain of God's pruning knife is a reminder of God's commitment to you. Disciples bear fruit because God will not stop until they do. In verse 3, Jesus takes a break 
from the metaphor. So it appears. He steps outside the vine and branches illustration and he speaks plainly to the disciples. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So Jesus backs up to the beginning of their spiritual journey with him. What is it that started these branches off clean and fruitful? How did it all begin? Verse 3 answers that. The disciples were saved. They were rescued by the word of Jesus. The word which I have spoken to you, Jesus says, has made you clean. Now, I said that Jesus takes a break from the vine and branches metaphor illustration here, but that's not, act, that's not entirely true. The word clean in verse 3 is the same root word as the word prunes in verse 2. The word for prunes in verse 2 is the Greek verb, listen to this, kothairo. kothairo. And the word for clean in verse 3 is the Greek adjective, katharoi. It's the same root, kathar, in each word, in each case. It's where we get our word uh, catharsis, which, which carries the idea of, of purifying, purging, cleansing. D.A. Carson writes, The cleansing power of the word Jesus has spoken to his disciples is equivalent to the life of the vine pulsating through the branches. Jesus' word, logos, is not assigned magical power. What is meant, rather, is that Jesus' teaching in its entirety, including what he is and what he does, since he himself is the logos incarnate, has already taken hold in the life of these followers, end quote. Has the word incarnate taken hold of you? In other words, has Jesus taken hold of you? Has the word that Jesus speaks to you cleansed you? And is it cleansing you? Has it pruned you definitively by giving you a new nature, a vital connection, a new heart? And does it continue to prune you by making you look more like the vine? You see, that's the goal for the branches to look like the vine. The word of Jesus has the power to save you from hell and the power to sanctify you and prepare you for heaven. Christ's word has the power to save you from your sins and it has the power to make you fruitful all your days as you kill more and more of your sins. The secret of fruitfulness is abiding in Christ. Jesus says in verses 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him him, bears much fruit. 
For without me, you can do nothing. Look again at that very first sentence in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. It's an interesting the way that's worded. What it means is this. Abide in me. Remain in me. Stay in me. Keep living in me. Stay connected to me. And if you do, you'll see to it that I, for my part, abide in you. So, so the way that you make sure Jesus is abiding in you is by abiding in Him. Now, we know that it's by God's grace alone that we abide in Him. But he's saying that when you do abide in me, rest assured, I will abide in you. When you abide in Christ, He abides in you. And so what Jesus is saying is that He's exhorting us to live such a life that He will continue to abide in us. If I keep abiding in him, I will make sure that I bear much fruit. That's what Jesus is telling me. It's what he's telling you. No branch bears fruit in isolation. No branch bears fruit apart from the vine. So abiding in Christ is the necessary prerequisite of fruitfulness for the Christian. The important word here is remain or abide. But, but it might confuse us if, if we come to it, or we might be confused if we come to it with the wrong assumptions. We, we shouldn't turn it into a, a mere emotion or a subjective experience. Now, don't get me wrong. Your relationship with Jesus should be full of feeling, emotion. Your union with God in Christ ought to be characterized by subjective experiences of communion with your Savior, no doubt. It's a personal relationship, so it has personal dynamics. But when Jesus says, abide in me, he includes all that, but he's referring foremost to an objective reality. He's saying, true disciples are connected to me. We are united together. And so stay in me, remain connected to me, abide in me, get your life from me, live your life, fulfill your vocations and your callings out of your union with me. The vine and branch illustration helps us understand what it looks like to abide. You see, a branch is only alive if the sap is flowing from the vine through the branches. Without sap, the branch dies. It withers. When people trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, His life flows through them like sap through a branch. Jesus makes them alive. His Word cleanses them. His spirit indwells in them and his father prunes them for the rest of their lives. That's what it looks like to abide in Christ. The life of Jesus, the life of Jesus flows through every Christian. Apart from his life, 
we would have no option but to abide in death. And apart from his life, we can accomplish nothing, zero. We we can do nothing to please God. We can do nothing to save ourselves from the fire that will burn up the dead branches forever. However, because of his life, we now have the ability to deny sin, to live for him. Because of his life, we will live forever with him in the heavenly home that he has prepared for us by going to the cross on our behalf. Charles Spurgeon's comment on the end of verse 5 is helpful. Quote, Without Jesus, you can talk any quantity, but without him, you can do nothing. The most eloquent discourse without him will be all a bottle of smoke. You shall lay your plans and arrange your machinery and start your schemes. But without the Lord, you will do nothing. End quote. Nothing shall come of our labors if it's not Christ who is supplying the power to do them. If only the hand of man is in our efforts and not the hand of God, all of our efforts, all of our doing, all of our exertion, all of our planning and laboring and scheming will come to nothing. It will bear no fruit, no matter what it might look like immediately. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. How much of your doing is in vain? Because you're doing it in your own wisdom, your own strength, rather than in the Lord's. I was reading in 2 Corinthians this week, just in my Bible reading, and remembered Paul uh, read where Paul says that all of a lot of the afflictions that he was enduring was to show him was God's way of showing him that he has to rely on God's strength rather than his own strength. How many of our daily duties? How many of your daily duties are you trying to do? You're trying to accomplish apart from consciously abiding in Christ. The end of, or the, yeah, the end of Psalm 127, verse 2, which comes right after the verse I read, says that God gives sleep to those he loves. This has been a convicting verse to me over the years. Are you resting in Christ as you do what God has called you to do? You see, our, our posture throughout life should be one of leaning back on Christ. Rather than leaning forward, we lean back into life because we're leaning back on Christ. Too often, we, we, go, we go through life leaning forward and, and running ahead of ourselves and running ahead of Christ. But if you lean back on Christ, abiding in Him, staying connected to Him, to His life, then He will propel you forward at speeds far greater than you could ever run 
on your own. The key to the Christian life is Christ's life in the Christian. Because of our connection to Him, we have the power to to live in a way that actually pleases Him. Not in a way that merits salvation, but in a way that actually pleases Him, honors Him, is faithful to Him. We have the power to become instruments in the building of God's kingdom. Before you can please God, you must understand your ability to your inability to please God apart from Christ, apart from resting in Him, apart from staying connected to Him. You must believe in your heart of hearts that you can do truly nothing without Him. So God doesn't want the fruit of your own effort. He despises the fruit that stems from self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. He's got no use for the fruit of a self-made man. Our man-made fruit, our accomplishments in the flesh, do nothing to honor God in the end, no matter how good they might look in the here and now. And they do nothing to further the gospel of God, no matter how good they might look or how good they make us feel. People who claim to be Christians but show no evidence of his life flowing through them, Jesus says, will be cut off, gathered up, and burned. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire. And they are burned. Unless there is Jesus' fruit in you, in, in us, in all of us, you're going to be cast into the fire. That's, that's the message. That's the straightforward, difficult truth here. And so you must take this warning seriously. We all must. And it's not just a warning for unbelievers. We, we, we can't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's talking to believers. In, in, in fact, this is primarily a warning for believers. Scriptural warnings like this one, and there are many in, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Scriptural warnings like this one are God's means of preserving the saints, preserving His people, His disciples. So when you hear this warning, and others like it, if you're a believer, the Spirit in you spurs you on to greater faithfulness, greater fruitfulness. That's that's the goal. That's the point here. And so I ask, is there unmistakable evidence that Jesus lives in you? If he lives in you, he'll make his presence known. Jesus doesn't hide inside his people, inside his children. God doesn't come and go and he doesn't hide. So if there's no fruit, if there really is no fruit, then he's not present. And if God isn't present, you don't belong to him. And the fire is waiting for you. 
We, we, we shouldn't dodge these hard words of Jesus here. Does Jesus and the Father and his Spirit live in you? Really, that's the question that Jesus is driving at in the, in the larger passage as well. That's what it means to be a Christian, for the Trinity to live in you. So the message of this passage is that fruitless disciples, a fruitless disciple is no disciple at all. True disciples are connected to Jesus like branches to the vine, therefore they will bear much fruit. Now, this doesn't mean that believers will never suffer periods of drought. But it does mean that over the course of their lives, believers will see evidence, will show evidence that Jesus really is abiding in them. But let me be clear about what I'm not saying. that The, the fire that awaits fruitless branches cannot be avoided by bearing fruit. If you're a branch that's headed for the fire, you can't save yourself from the fire by trying really hard to start bearing, start bearing fruit. You can't go straight to that. The first thing you need to do is get vitally connected to the vine. First, you must unite yourself to the vine by trusting in him and receiving his life. You see, the fruit that we produce is a response to the life that we receive. We can't produce it if we're not receiving it from Jesus first. It's like breathing. We breathe in God's life and we breathe out works, fruit, faithfulness. And really, this is ongoing. It's not just a one-time thing that happens at the beginning of our spiritual journey. It's ongoing. We breathe in the life of God and we breathe out the good works that He works in us by His grace. But once you are vitally united to the vine by faith, you can go on and you will go on to produce fruit. And Jesus says that if you remain in Him, If you keep breathing in Him, if you stay in Him all of your days, you will bear much fruit. Much fruit awaits your life by God's grace as you remain in Jesus. So let's let's all go out this week and do what God has called us to do. Let's do those things, those tasks, those callings, those vocations that God has given us to do. And let's do them. Let's do all of these things that we're supposed to be doing as long as God has us here. Let's do them while abiding in Christ and bearing much fruit in Him. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Father, we... We do confess that all of these things that we have meditated on in these six verses are, are things that you must accomplish in us 100% from beginning to end. You have put it on us. You have commanded us to do it. But we need your help. We need your grace.
We need the life of Jesus Christ pulsating through us so that we can be faithful branches on the vine. Preserve us by your grace. Keep us steadfast in the faith that you have given to us. Cause us to bear much fruit, even this week, as we stay connected to your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.